Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Appreciate you tuning in to check out this episode. I'm recording down by a wetland area at the Wildlife Refuge south of town, listening to uh, some of the, the geese flying in. I think they're already wintering out here, so I see a bunch of white geese out here and then some uh, Canadian geese coming in. You can probably hear them. Maybe they'll get... Uh, noise gated out but it's kind of here cool being out here this time of year again and seeing some of the birds coming into winter over here it's kind of fun i like uh i like seeing them come back in the summertime they're gone you know so it's a uh, it's pretty emptied out pretty dried out really through a good part of that time of the year i think even by now this time in november there'll probably be some elk that are or, you know, part of the elk herd that comes out here i think already coming back into start wintering down in this area so it's kind of cool kind of cool seeing them move around and uh, pop up into their different locations and stuff and cool kind of seeing the the rhythms of the year sort of carry on too i like that part you know i was out um i was out pretty recently i was up uh, in the mount hood area i was doing a, an overnight uh, camping trip up there which is pretty cool enjoyed myself going out over there i um let's see what did i do so i went up to portland and then cut over, uh, I think over to Mount Hood first, or oh, sorry, to the Hood River area, and then cut north from Hood River, and then went up into um, up into the Mount Hood National Forest from that location, which was pretty cool. And I was thinking that the Highway 26 from like Estacada and Sandy was still, well, it was said it was open, but I said that I would expect delays during that uh, that time. I think still because they were trying to process some of the damage that occurred from the wildfires that happened up there along the Clackamas River, I believe. Um, so I still haven't actually seen any of the, any of the fire damage from those wildfires that happened in, the, in those multiple spots across Oregon. I still haven't driven up those, uh, those highway sections there to see the type of fire damage that had happened. I've really actually been trying to avoid those on the trips that I cut over to eastern Oregon or cut south um, or southeast from here, but uh, but yeah, so I've, I've kind of stayed away from them, even though they are really uh, quite close to this area, you know, like down in uh, in the Eugene area or out past Springfield in Lane County or um, out in Marion County in Salem or further up in Clackamas County where, uh, where the Highway 26 was. But I went out to Hood River and then I cut north from there and, uh, and then tried to take a bunch of photos. It's cool that that valley up there, I think it's the Odell Valley. It's really nice. A lot of, um, a lot of, what is it? Fruit? I think it's fruit orchards up there. A lot of apple trees in that region. A few other kind of uh, kind of products grown up there. But beautiful spot, beautiful view of Mount Hood up there. Really great for photography. And then it's nice too. The uh, that Mount Hood Highway kind of does a cool wraparound along the mountain. It's probably one of the nicest um, kind of scenic roads that you get around one of the Cascade Mountains in Oregon. Here, I think like Mount Jefferson, you get a lot of wilderness area around it. Mount Hood has that also, a lot of national forest, a lot of wilderness area, but there, there's still like some structured roads that kind of take you near and by it. And uh, you don't really get that kind of access when you go down to the Three Sisters. You got the Three Sisters wilderness area that takes up a bunch of that uh, kind of impassable terrain that, that goes across the, the wide section of the Cascades there as you, you go over into the Bend area from, uh, from the coast. But uh, it's interesting over there. Yeah, big sections where you just really can't take a whole uh, highway all the way around the mountain there. So it's cool going up to Mount Hood, getting pretty close to it, and then having all these 
national forest roads that give you road access to get a lot closer up to the mountain and then up to different campsites and different creeks and uh, you just have you have a bunch of different access up there and it's cool um, late in the year like this it's really not as popular as it would be in the springtime or the summertime as uh, as Portland recreation enthusiasts are uh, are hip and active to get out to that uh, that section of of Mount Hood and it's not really in that deeper winter section yet where people are trying to get out um, out to the uh, the snow parks. So as it was for me, I got to go up in the mountains. I got to drive around for a while. I got to explore some little mountain roads that would kind of cut up and meander off into some different spots or follow a creek for a while. That was really fun. And uh, it was nice. Yeah, really just going around, camping around, trying to take some pictures, trying to find some viewpoints of Mount Hood as you kind of circle around the east side of it and kind of catch these different angles of it through the day and it's cool this time of year with this sort of rolling active uh, clouds that you get sort of high up into the sky you get a lot of different textures and a lot of different dynamics that sort of uh, map along with the mountain as you're trying to make something uh, something visual in the photographs but that was cool i liked getting out uh, doing some hikes doing some traveling around that area i thought that was pretty cool to to kind of check out that mount hood area and uh, get some outdoors time in that was kind of cool this fall Nice weather out there, too. Didn't really get very harsh. Still pretty easy to get around up there. And then a nice 40-minute uh, drive. You're back in Hood River. There's some pubs. There's some cool coffee shops, cool cafes and stuff. Now, during the lockdown part, it'll be a little bit more difficult. Most of my experience so far has really all been kind of a, a takeout or, you know, for pickup style of interaction with a lot of places anyway, you know, coffee, coffee shops, cafes and stuff. It's a little trickier when you're on the road. That's one thing I've noticed too, is, you know, uh, like way back in the day when I travel and, uh, you know, we'd stop in at a spot or we'd want to take a break or something. We'd pull into kind of a more populated mid-sized town, go to a Starbucks really. Cause like that, that corporate chain always had some of the same feature sets to it. It was really consistent, but you go to a Starbucks, you get free internet access, you get, consistent drinks you could get like consistent stuff for um for like a whole bunch of different things it was really cool you get free parking that sort of a thing um so yeah we'd always grab free internet access and then they weren't really like i don't know frustrated with you trying to get out of there we noticed with a lot of those mom and pop coffee shops with reason they would kind of put some time limits or some restrictions or some caps or capacity on uh, on what you had access to uh, using the internet and so it was cool to kind of jump over to starbucks and then sort of just about anywhere in the U.S. that you would drop into, you could pull in, go to the Starbucks, get a consistent experience. Um, just for what it is, it was nice. I kind of prefer other things for coffee as it is, but it wasn't really so much for coffee. It was about trying to find like a, uh, well, pretty much like a, a work spot or an office where I could go in and then I could upload all of the photos that I had on my camera card to my laptop while I ran it on power. And then I had internet access. So if I wanted to send any emails out or if I had to upload any photos or any videos, I could do that from that location and then it wouldn't really cost me anything or um, it wouldn't really be like a, a bunch of trouble. And I was doing this back in like 2011, 12 when there was internet access around through the phone, but it wasn't really as ubiquitous, ubiquitous as it is now to sort of simply send out a bunch of video when you were deep out in the woods like I was. So I remember I remember like setting up in a coffee shop and trying to render frames, you know. Stupid. Won't do that again. <laughs> render when I get back home, I think, and render on a real editing computer or whatever it was. But yeah, I had a little dinky laptop. I was trying to render out some standard definition video, and it took hours what a waste. Should be out in the woods and stuff while I'm out on a camping trip. But 
um, <laughs> trying to be a photographer, you know. Uh, so kind of the old days of doing it, but uh, <laughs> that's the old days. Easily sending things up while I sip on a coffee in a shop. Um, <laughs> the old dark days of doing it. Uh, so now with the COVID stuff, that's not really even an option anymore. You can't really like go in, drop in, do your office hours type stuff at a coffee shop, sort of like uh, I had become accustomed to doing in the past. And now as I'm sort of interoperating out of uh, my more local spot, it's uh, it's just a lot back to my home office, and then I do stuff there and uh, wrap up my work. But I used to kind of take that up out in the morning, and then have, head over to a coffee shop, do my things there, and kind of have like a little push behind it. You know, you want to kind of kind of go out, get some stuff done. You have some energy behind the day, and I always like that as a, a bit of momentum. But now it's sort of difficult, especially when you're out traveling for multiple days and you've just been out camping. You can do a lot camping now. It's really cool. But if you want to stop in, swing into town. And then sort of uh, swing in for a little bit more of a civilized experience. It's harder to come by now when you don't live there. You know, you, there's no you, you have to get takeout. There's no restaurant to go into. Now that it's winter time, it's kind of more wet, more rainy, more cold for sure. Um, so sitting and eating in a parking lot isn't really as amusing as it was in the summertime when this is all new. You know, so. <laughs> Uh, parts of that, you know, there's kind of ups and downs of uh, traveling this time of year. And uh, now with the lockdown, too, it's kind of strange. There's like certain counties, it seems like. I don't know how to really explain it. There's some gas stations that are almost not open at all. You know, like I think in Oregon, if you're from Oregon, you're aware that uh, you don't pump your own gas here. Really, I think there's like an attendant at every gas station. They've kind of tried to go back and forth on this the last couple of years. It's probably near on its way out. But during COVID, a lot of counties, or at least some of the counties up toward the north, they won't let you pump your own gas now. They have like, or sorry, what is what am I saying? They won't have, they won't allow someone else to pump their your gas because that's a risk to them. So now there's a sign set up that says, "Hey, you got to get out. You got to run your card. You got to pump your own gas." Okay, that's fine. But then a county over, you know, just like another twenty minutes on the freeway as you drive, that next gas station that you pull off to, they require that someone else pump your gas, and they're shocked and stunned. And surprised at your rude candor that you'd even think about trying to pump your own gas while you're in the state of Oregon. So a little bit back and forth of, uh, of the fun of, I don't know, trying to gas up while I'm on a road trip across Oregon and kind of through the lockdown stuff. Really, no one will talk to you, though. So you just kind of set trying to read a sign outside of the door, kind of confused. And then they'll look at you kind of weird if you, if you didn't figure it out fast enough or whatever it is. So it seems like a lot of that has been fun. But it's been cool. Uh, so last time I was on the podcast, I was talking about knives. I was talking about pocket knives. I was talking about steel. I was talking about different types of steel that you can use in your pocket knife or that pocket knife makers use in the pocket knives that they sell you, I suppose is what I meant. And I kind of wanted to continue on with uh, some of that stuff today. And then, uh, I don't know, maybe the other everyday carry kind of stuff that comes around that I've been thinking about a little bit too. But I was thinking about... Um, the couple knives that I have. So I was kind of going deep into like, well, there's this type of steel and there's this type of steel and this doesn't rust and this is hard and whatever that is. But I was going to kind of jump in and just kind of go to the knives that I have. So I mentioned the Gerber Gator. I was going to mention three knives. I think that'd be good. These are kind of the three that I'm into right now. But um, I was going to mention the Gerber Gator. That's that uh, the like three and a half inch blade. You can get that real inexpensive it's probably like 40 bucks tops at most places i picked mine up at buy mart a couple years ago it's held up great the coating on it's sort of a rubberized coating that's held up great with the ozone stuff and they probably wear out over a number of years that's really fine with me and uh it's a sharp knife it's d2 steel it works really well for most of the stuff that i do but 
in a lot of ways, it's kind of my cutting around knife. So I have it in my, uh, my side pocket when I'm doing some outdoor stuff. I can kind of carve on a tree. I can chop on some stuff. I can put a, you know, like put an X in a tree when I'm marking my campsite or something like that. It's fun. I can kind of chop up a whatever if I need to. I can open a box. I can do all those kind of things. And I feel pretty good about its length and its use and its durability in the outdoors. Um, so that one I kind of carry on me when I'm doing a little bit more outdoorsy stuff. I'm actually kind of going out for a bit. But that's sort of the in-the-pocket knife. And really when it extends, it's about eight inches. And it's got like a pretty solid bit of grip to it so it really feels like there's something in your hand and it really feels like there's a big thing in your pocket too so that's kind of why i only carry it around when i'm actually kind of stepping out into into doing some real camping stuff but the thing that i have with me every day now is this little um uh, like two and a half inch or two and a quarter inch uh spider coat knife i really like this one there's some smaller ones there's some bigger ones uh they're all kind of like a basic design they've got uh, sort of a i guess like a, a broad shaped blade this one's kind of that uh it's not a scandy blade i think it's a flat grind and then uh, spider coast sort of known for these big finger holes or you know like on the blade there's like this big uh, circular hole that you kind of put your thumb into and use that to kind of whip out the blade as you're uh, you're unfolding and this has got that locking back design uh so does that gerber gator too i like that locking back folding design and then um in addition to that i've got a really inexpensive full tang knife that I use for some of that uh, batoning, kind of whacking around stuff. And that I keep uh, over in an ammo can that I have in my truck here. When I'm out camping and stuff, then uh, maybe I'll throw that onto a, a backpack uh, clip on the side so that I have it there. But that's like a full thing. Um, I think it's a four-inch blade with about a four-inch handle, four-inch usable handle. It's probably a little more than that. but So it, en- it ends up being about nine inches or so. And it's kind of based off the... The uh, the SA five P knife I think is what it would be. Uh, you can look that one up. Cool knives. I really like those. That's actually one I want to get in the future. This is sort of like a Chinese knockoff version of that. So I'll kind of break out the prices in a little bit. But um, but yeah, if you look up those knives, they're like the Rat three. I think it's kind of pretty similar in style to that. Um, but this one's made by Sema. Sema is a Chinese company. I don't know if they even really exist as anything more than that. But I found them online. I found them on Amazon. They have a few different cheap knife options. As it's printed on the blade, they use a a higher-end steel, at least in comparison at its price point. So I think this blade that I have is a 7CR blade, which is okay. Uh, But it was like $20 for this full-tang knife. And that's really a lot with a micarta handle um, and a sheath, like a Kydex sheath. So it's a great knife to kind of keep in the side over here. I've been using it like when I was saying I go out on those chanterelle picking days. You know, I have like a, I have a camera bag on my side. I've emptied the camera out of it, and then I've got like a, just like a little shopping bag, like a little plastic sack in there. And then as I'm walking around in the forest and stuff, I've I got that full tang knife. I'll pop that out uh, as I find a chanterelle. I'll cut the base of it, and then throw it in my bag pop the knife back in and then kind of carry on. So I've been using it for like a lot of like kind of basic harvesting stuff like that. This just kind of been easy, uh, easy side access and stuff for me while I've been, uh, been kind of hunting around doing some foraging stuff. But really a lot of the time it stays in the car and it works really well. And for that kind of a, a knife and kind of for as often as I've been using it for some stuff, it's sort of like a cool camp knife to kind of like whittle on stuff, you know, that, or, you know, kind of like dig in, whittle on stuff, whack on stuff. That's sort of the bushcrafting knife. Like last time I was talking about bushcrafting, you know, like batoning through 
a one inch or a two inch stick or something like that. Um, trying to make a, uh, what is it like a tent or a tarp hanger, like an A-frame for a tarp or a frame for like boiling water or I don't know, getting stuff ready for your fire or whatever it is. And mostly I just kind of use it to like whack up smaller uh, kindling sticks for firewood or feather sticks. Feather sticks are cool. I don't really think that this bushcrafting knife is, has really been sharp enough for it. I kind of like the spider coat knife a little bit more for some of the smaller, uh, smaller feathering stuff. But, uh, but when you really have like a sharp blade, it makes it so much easier. Sharpening is something I want to get into too. But for these feather sticks, it's cool. You get like a piece of kindling, right? Like just kind of a long, like foot long piece of dry wood that's sort of an inch or half inch thick around, maybe a little thicker than that. And then what you do is uh, you, it takes a lot of skill to kind of get used to, but you do this uh, this kind of long and thin carve, like if you were like grating, if you're going to like grate just like a, a little fillet off of that one inch round stick, and then you got all the way down to the end of the stick, like the last like inch or centimeter, and then you pulled up on your cut and then left that little last bit there. And what you get, if you get it thin enough, is that wood will kind of naturally curl up like a little piece of ribbon or something. But it'll kind of curl up and it's going to be this dry, thin wisp of wood that's sort of curled up at the end of your branch there. And then it holds there. And then you repeat that, cut another nice, thin, thin little paper-thin uh, carve of wood off down to the bottom, down to the last centimeter, leave it there, and then you sort of work your way around the whole stick there, and then you kind of work around again a layer up. And as you do that, if you put enough time into it, and it really does take a good bit of processing, but if you do that, um, you can make out in the woods, you can make these feather sticks, which are kind of cool. A lot of the time, you have the tools on you to build a fire or to build a heat source without going into this much labor to try and produce some sort of tool to facilitate this for you. But it is cool to know about if you're working in some conditions that are a little bit more difficult to get a fire going. But you get these, uh, these feather sticks set up. You probably have to get a handful of them. And then once you get your kindling set up, you can lay that. You can get your, your kindling or well, you can get just your, your starter going. If you're able to like use like um, one of those fire rods, those ferro rods, you're able to strike that with your knife throw the sparks down onto whatever you have as your fire starter. If you can get that to, to kindle up into a flame, then you put these feather sticks right over it. And then you're able to, because you've kind of cut those, those fillets down into it, the, the air is able to get in between the cuts of the wood that are so thin there. And as it's dry wood, it'll catch fire quickly. The sap in the wood will burn. And then it'll really take off almost like it's a piece of paper. But it has that sustaining quality of being a real piece of wood. So you get a flame and you get some embers to start burning off of it. And that's a good way to get a flame to build up quickly. Then you're able to also have the kind of thicker pieces of wood attached to it there. So you're able to get kind of the stronger build of the kindling a little earlier on. It's kind of a cool way to do it. But I think really in a lot of ways, Man, it's a lot of uh, preparatory work to get those uh, those pieces ready if you're trying to build a fire in sort of a mobile situation. You know, if you're kind of setting up a base camp or setting up some some sort of uh, you know location where you're going to be you're going to be, and that's where your stuff is. And for whatever reason, you didn't bring any technical gear with you. That might be something that you run into to try and do. Or if you're trying to set up a fire in conditions that are wet or like a little bit damp or uh, in some way, uh, you know, more challenging to get a fire going. I think these are these are kind of good ways to do that if you're stuck. But really, the trick is to not get stuck. And I think like that's kind of the big thing of a lot of the wilderness stuff that I've learned is that um, 
there's sort of man, well, there's a couple channels of it. There's a, a whole bunch of stuff that you'd kind of think to worry about. Uh, as you know, like I need to start a fire, and then there's sort of a, a whole complicated series of things you can do to to naturally start a fire if you want to go down that route. Good skills to have, good things to learn about. Then there's also sort of another route where uh, you know about the modern world, you know about some of the tools you can get a hold of, and you can kind of cut down the time and the weight and the expense or the expense on yourself that it takes, the resources that you have to give up to get a fire going, to get a thing going when you're out in the woods. And if you're kind of uh, traveling light and trying to travel fast and uh, not really staying in the same locations a lot, it's almost a greater expense of your energy and time to try and build a camp with wood and a knife every time you get somewhere than it is to just have a couple pieces that you can uh, bring in and then utilize quickly and then in a clean way you can kind of pull out. You don't really risk injury or risk any loss of time and you get kind of a lot of the benefit out of it. A one, I guess, or kind of particularly dropping into that would be like a jet boil or specifically for fire starting stuff, I guess that's what kind of staying there. Jet boil is sort of one of the fancier ends of that. Really the most simple way is get cotton swabs and scoop up a bunch of petroleum jelly, you know, like Vaseline, that kind of stuff. You can test this before you go out too, but because uh, some things are like a little different. Um, but the petroleum jelly, I think, is supposed to light up pretty well. So if you have a cotton ball and a little petroleum jelly, one, it's a cosmetic, so you can use that as like a lip balm if you go out, which is something that I've been wrecked with before when I go out to, to um, kind of quickly changing drier or higher elevation or colder climates than uh, than what my skin and pores were kind of used to before. Man, I get burns and stuff in the cold. It's weird how that can be. Or chaps, you know, like chapped lips, split lips, that sort of stuff. But the Vaseline can help a lot for that. But if you have like a little Ziploc bag and some Vaseline uh, cotton swabs and then just like a regular pocket lighter, you can light those up as your fire starter real easy without having to hunt down dry moss and bark on the south side of a tree out in the woods somewhere while you're uh, cold and trying to get a fire going. So you kind of pop one of these out. You hit that with your lighter or you hit that with your ferro rod if you don't have a lighter. But really, I say bring the lighter. You have the you have the flint with you if you need it. You got the butane. You can have a ferro rod as a backup if you feel like it. But for a lot of the kind of lighter, just a few day kind of things, it's tricky. Man, if you get a lighter that goes bad. But I haven't really heard of uh, like hunters or kind of longer term, 14 plus day outdoorsmen uh, going out with things that are way different than even just like a regular Bic lighter. The, uh, the ferro rods are cool, though. They, they seem to help a lot, but I think there's some, some cool stuff that you can do. Or there's the reliability of a lighter that I've had for a long time is, uh, has kind of always helped me out or been fine for a lot of the stuff that I've done for the uh, shorter periods of time that I've been out. But, yeah, if you can hit that fire starter and then put that under um, some kindling and stuff, you can get a fire going pretty easy. In a lot of ways, I haven't really jumped into doing a lot of uh, cold-weather camping this year or cold-weather kind of remote camping. But, the, man, having a fire is great. But also sometimes not having a fire is uh, sort of the way to go too. Like I've been talking about, I've been using a um, like this uh, portable propane heater with me a lot of the time. And that's uh, a lot lighter and a lot cleaner for some of the more simple stuff that you want, like a little fire or a little heat source from. Like if, uh, if I'm going fishing down at the bank of a lake, and this has kind of come up uh, just like a week or so ago when I went out to a spot. But um, but yeah, you're fishing down by the side of a lake. You want some heat there or something. Uh, and it's kind of nice like, if you want to <laughs> catch a fish, throw a, uh, throw a cast iron skill down and like, uh, you know, make it up there on the side of the bank. But, um, but if, uh, if you're out 
and yeah, just kind of carrying that real light kind of two pound or I don't know, three or four pound, um, little box down with you, hooking the propane up to it. And then yeah, boom, you got heater right there. You're throwing your cast and, uh, you can kind of, kind of manage uh, temperatures that go down a lot more. So it makes uh, just kind of those simple things a lot more comfortable. That's sort of for the car camping based stuff. I wouldn't really ever pack that out with me, but, uh, but even for when I'm packing out, I sort of noticed that if I go with a lighter bit of stuff, it, it really ends up being okay a lot of the time. So, uh, sometimes it's cool, especially at night to have the big fire and stuff, but even for like a lot of the cooking stuff that I do or a lot of the midday stuff that I do, if I'm taking a break, I really want to just pull out the jet boil from my backpack, throw the fuel canister on it, fill that uh, can up with water, make a tea or make a coffee or something like that, or make a soup or, you know, whatever, kind of, kind of backpacking meal might be in there. Um, that, that kind of a thing is like, or, and even just like as the jet boil is like a, a source of heat is pretty cool. And then if you have the, the, the dry wood and kindling sources around, you can use that, um, as a, as a fire starter tool too, but, uh, which I've happened a couple of times. That's kind of an off label use that I don't, I don't really recommend and stuff, but, uh, but even just, yeah, having a quick, uh, little jet boil, punch that on, get some water hot, heat up your hands and stuff, and then kind of rely on your jackets and your, your, uh, waterproof gear to keep you warm through at least most of the daylight hours and stuff. But, uh, that's kind of, kind of how I've tried to, to avoid some of that stuff. Um, but yeah, the knife stuff has been pretty cool. I like, uh, yeah, working with that gator. The uh, Spyderco Dragonfly is kind of a smaller pocket knife every day. And then, uh, yeah, that bigger SEMA knife has been pretty cool. Been uh, been digging that for some of the bigger uh, kind of bushcrafting stuff that I got to do. Um, sharpeners. Sharpeners are pretty important. I dig sharpening. Uh, I also don't sharpen very much. And so that's kind of one of the things is I'm sort of uh, probably most notably a, an irresponsible knife uh, owner, at least in the sense of, uh, trying to keep them sharp. So I'm normally more likely to just buy a new $15 knife, you know, go from one knife to the next knife, to the next knife, to the next knife. As, uh, as I notice that the blade on it goes dull, you know, like I buy, I've, that's how it was for the longest time, especially kind of early on is, you know, I kind of afford uh, a cheaper knife that was cool. I thought at the time, I didn't really know much about it, but you know, like, Hey, this is great. It's a, it's a step up from my, my Victor Knox that I used to carry around. So this is cool. Uh, you know, easy folding blade knife or whatever it is. I'll use this. And then by the time it gets dull or it gets kind of shaky in the handle or whatever is I end up just kind of tossing the knife and I don't even really ever worry about tooling the knife or sharpening the blade in the knife. And really a lot of the time it's not been a, a quality enough blade to really bother to invest that much into. So in some parts that's my fault from the very beginning. But the thing I'm trying to do now more responsibly is even if it is like a less expensive knife, try and tool that knife to keep it in good shape, but also kind of select a knife that's going to be a fine knife for a longer period of time. I don't think they all have to be brilliant, you know, uh, state of the art knives. You know, there's like 30 or 40 year old buck knives that are made out of 316 steel that people have had around as their hunting knives forever. So I think that's really cool. And that's sort of that thing I was talking about a bit Last time on the podcast, I'll bring it up again this time too. A knife is really a cutting tool. You know, it's supposed to be just like a sharp blade. And so, um, so it's cool to kind of use that as just that tool and, and kind of work that, uh, that blade down to be a sharp piece for you when you're out in the woods and stuff. But for a lot of the time, um, if it's not like a specialized knife that I'm using for like something a little bit more specific that I'm trying to bring it in for, um, and it's just kind of my cutting around knife, it really ends up cutting on a lot of stuff which could be sticks or wood or uh, it's just sort of like a tool knife that I use to, you know, like cut fishing line or 
or wrap up rope or get something ready on the truck or get something rigged up on my backpack or, um, or whatever it is, you know? Um, so it's kind of like a, a lot of occupancy and that puts a lot of like wear and damage on the blade. And for as little as I'm saying, I sharpen it. The blade is really often pretty dull. Like, I don't know if it's really like prepped to just do a, an easy, uh, slice through of a lot of stuff or we really like take advantage of that cutting edge on it. So, uh, so yeah, sharpening stuff is cool. There's a couple of brands that do sharpenings uh, out there. You can get them in a lot of places. I think the one that I see often is Smith's as a sharpener. They do a lot of kitchen stuff. They do a lot of pocket knife, knife stuff. You can get them at Walmart. You can get them at Bymart. I'm pretty sure. The one I prefer though is the brand WorkSharp. WorkSharp you can find in a lot of places too. They're available online also. And if you're an Oregonian, I think it's a company based out of Ashland, Oregon. I had no idea until I was looking at their pamphlet and trying to figure out which pieces I should get. But uh, WorkSharp, they have a, a number of different sharpening tools. And I guess the reason I kind of elevate them above the Smith stuff, at least for, uh, for some of the things that I'm kind of interested in, uh, their, their tools are just like uh, similarly priced, but like a little bit more robust on the, on the WorkSharp side. So specifically is this, uh, this electric belt sharpener that I'm looking at. Um, that sharpener has uh, way more flexibility, way more robustness, way higher horsepower, uh, just kind of machining to it. The other Smith's kind of knockoff version of it is much more limited, much thinner component pieces, uh, kind of plastic component pieces. Nowhere near the same kind of quality or longevity would be expected in that as like a, a tool. This other piece is sort of like, oh, that's like a, you know, that's like a power tool is sort of what you're looking at there. Also, in addition to that, the WorkSharp stuff has a, uh, I guess it's like a sharpening bench, you would call it. I think it's like a, a field sharpener. I'm actually pretty interested in this, but uh, I think it's a, a field sharpening piece. It's sort of like a little flat piece that you'd, uh, you bring with you in your, your backpack or in your truck when you're going out on a trip, and you'd have it in your camp or you'd have it with you and uh, to sharpen up a knife. And it really takes more time than I thought it did. You know, you kind of look at a, a quick video or something, and you look at a guy kind of do eight quick whacks on a sharpener, and then, it, yeah, there you go cutting the hair off my arm in no time. But really for a lot of this stuff, after I've kind of beat on a knife for a bit, it takes like a half hour to kind of work the two sides of a knife on a whetstone and grind it down with an electric sharpener. Man, it's like, you know, a pass, two passes or whatever it is. It kind of re reangles that, that grind immediately. Um, but if you're just kind of rubbing that blade against the stone, it takes a long time to, to sort of work in the sharpness to it. Um, you know, and really level up that knife to a higher level. But, uh, but yeah, this work sharp, um, uh, sharpening bench is pretty cool. It's kind of a little, a little platform. It's got these angle guides on it. So you can put the knife on that angle and then cut across that flat surface, uh, and then kind of put the right angle grind in on your, uh, your cutting knife. Then on the side of it, I think it has like a, a ceramic alignment rod. You've probably seen those in your kitchen or something too. You know, you, you run your kitchen knife or you've seen a chef or something before they, they get going on a piece of meat or their vegetables or whatever. You see a little chef video and they'll kind of run the, their chef knife across this, uh, this sort of solid rod that they put down to the table and they'll shwink, 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 shwink. And then they, they align the blade by kind of coming in on the right cut and then the left cut of the blade from the, I guess, from the hilt. Is that by your the top of your hand there when you grab it? But sort of from the hilt end to the point, you're sh and then uh, you kind of, I guess it pushes the atoms, it pushes the blade, you know, whatever little uh, kind of microscopic warbles you'd have, those little meanders that you'd have, and what you'd want it to be a real straight, fine, aligned uh, blade there. I guess those kind of, those kind of quick 
slices on that piece of steel. They align that and then bring that into a sharper piece. There's also like a leather strop. I never got into leather, leather strop. I should probably. That's sort of a part of it I, I really don't understand yet um, of like working the leather strop. I've seen people use their belts. Uh, that sort of made the most sense to me if uh, you have that around. But really, like as a, as a thing I'm going to bring out back with me, I haven't really brought that back out. But uh, but yeah, you run the knife backside across the leather, and that's supposed to, I guess, do even more to sharpen it. But at a point, it's like, man, that must be some sh sharp knife. Have you seen the, the test though like that, you know, where they put it up to their arm hair? Or, you know, like guys do that a lot. I've seen chefs do that, but they'll put it up to their hair, and then they'll kind of do just a real light little just hardly wisping across the, the hairs that stand up on the wrist. And if the knife blade is easily able to just kind of cut right through that without a real hesitation or kind of bending it over or knocking it down and then dragging it out, that's supposed to be a sharp knife. That's like your, your Lippmann's test for it. It's almost razor sharp. That's what it seems like, you know, sharp enough to shave with, it seems. So um, <laughs> I've seen people like work their axes down to that sharpness, right? You see people with a, an axe head and they'll grind that down to such a sharpness that they can take take that axe and cut the hairs off their wrist or i guess shave off their face with their hatchet you know that's a little more uh that's a little more lumberjack than i'm willing to do i'm kind of just hanging out trying to take some pictures trying to stay warm trying to keep the heat going trying to keep my knife sharp so kind of cool stuff but uh yeah thanks for talking about knives and sharpening and some other outdoor stuff some out hood stuff it's all been good. So hope you guys are having a good November, a good uh, Thanksgiving, dropping into a good December now. And uh, yeah, appreciate it. If you guys want to see more of my stuff, you can go to BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can go to BillyNewmanPhoto.com forward slash support if you want to find out some more information on how to support some of the effort that I'm doing with this podcast or with the photographs that I'm taking. Uh, you can do that too. But uh, yeah, thanks a lot for listening to this episode. Hope to talk to you again next time. Bye.